Well, Jurgen Klopp is um, my favourite person in the world oh, at the moment. Well, why not? I absolutely, I have a photograph of him. Of my <laughs> really? Um, yeah, do you want to see a picture of him? I'd love yeah, that. Um, yeah, yeah. Hang on. Uh, you should make him your avatar on Twitter. That would really, uh, that would really uh, fuck uh, Look, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at him just relaxing. What was it, 6-1 against Southampton? Yeah, when he, was, he pointed, they, they said to him, How, is it true you've had a hair transplant? He said, yeah, I think it looks really stylish. What do you think? <laughs> He's just shameless. Yeah, and, he love said, that. and then he said somebody else, some other manager had said... Um, I play football as poetry, and he said, I play football as heavy metal. Absolutely brilliant. He's fantastic. I love him. And all the Liverpool fans completely adore him. And look at the results. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> love him. Love him. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the new podcast where old books get a new life. I'm John Mitchinson, and we're coming to you live from the kitchen table of Unbound, the website where... Readers and writers come together to produce great books. And I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. We are the Levis and Butthead of reading, as every week it's up to you to decide which is which. And we're also going to be joined in the Baldrick role today by Mr Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, evening. Matthew. And uh, later on, we're going to be joined by uh, Linda Grant, to talk about Jean Rhys and specifically Jean Rhys's novel Good Morning Midnight. But first, as is traditional on Backlisted, John, what have you been reading? I've had a lovely week, Andy. I've had a a week of deliciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets to this time of year, and uh, for those of you who are listening uh, in in September 2019, I'm actually talking to you in, uh, in, in December 2015. And at a certain point of the year, you just want a book that is full of cold. I wanted a book that was full of coldness and bleached wood and, and, the, and, the, and the sound of, of, of the sea on pebbles and just something that made me feel wintry. And I, I wondered a couple of weeks ago, I picked up Tove Janssen. I uh, say Tove. Let- I say Tove because I don't know how Tove. Let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. I was informed by the great Will Grozier a couple of days ago that it is Tove as in Duve. Tove. Tove Janssen. Tove Janssen. Yeah. Well, I was reading Tove Janssen's The Winter Book, which is just a beautiful, almost almost a perfect Mm. uh, collection of stories by uh, selected by Ali Smith, the great Ali Smith. Yeah. And, um, I just, I've, I've just, I felt like I've, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's a, um, collection of stories which almost functions like an autobiography. They're, they're, I mean, it's fictional, yeah. but the stories themselves are kind of cumulative and they go through a, I mean, it starts with very small child and ends with an old woman railing against mm. the, 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 the kind of, uh, the world. Uh, there's a fantastic story towards the end of the book about a squirrel, which she befriends, and um, it's it's it, it, it's one of those it, again. It's that thing about when you sometimes just need comfort reading. Yes. But strangely, um, I, and if I had the copy in front of me, but I've left it on the tube, I would <laughs> be able to read magnificent passages of uh, loveliness. Well, they they are drawn. The stories in the Winter Book are chronological, aren't they? And they're they drawn from different points in her career. So she wrote um, several volumes of short stories, not all of which have been translated into English yet. Is it a book for adults or children? It's a book for adults, yeah. I mean, the thing about Tuve, 
You have to say Tuve Jansson. Is that I, I loved the, of course, she's most famous for writing the Moomin Troll books and the Moomin books. And I loved the Moomin books as a child, particularly the later ones, Moomin Papa at Sea and Moomin Valley in November. Yeah. And I took the liberty of writing down, this is the opening of Moomin Papa at Sea. This is the, this is their book oh supposedly God. for children. It starts, one afternoon at the end of August, Moomin Papa was walking about in his garden feeling at a loss. He had no idea what to do with himself because it seemed everything there was to be done had already been done or was being done by somebody else. And I only as an adult, when I read it, I read it's a book about a midlife crisis. So, so, <laughs> so one of the weird things is that, as we'll see when we get to talk about Jean Rhys later, I hadn't planned it this way, but there's a weird resonance in that mm. strange kind of slightly dislocated narrative voice that Tove Janssen has. Yeah which kind of does sort of fit with the, the Gene Reese, uh, certainly the Gene Reese that we're going to talk about later. Well, I've, I've very much, the thing that I loved about her books as a child, which I still like about her work as an adult, either her writing for children or, or for adults, is that unsentimental mixture of humour and melancholy and emotional realism, all of which you would find actually in Gene Reese without and, talking about Gene Reese too quickly. Also, but they're amazing, mad explosions of total invention so yeah one of the first stories in the book is about a child rolling a stone which is made from silver rolling and rolling and it's 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 very very intense and it in the end she drops the stone and the stone explodes and covers the whole of the neighborhood in silver that silver that place the neighborhood. Amazing. i agree this is kind of Nordic magic realism. I mean, a hitherto undiscovered, unthought of, <laughs> unremarked upon kind of genre. And I thought, how, yeah. how do you yeah. get, I mean, in my own case, how do I get to 52 and only discover Truvi Janssen's, I mean, yeah. I mean, the Moomin Trolls, we grew up with them. Yeah, but yeah. I was reading about her this week. Apparently Moomin Troll, uh, uh, Moomin Papa at Sea and, and Moomin Valley in November were published in Finnish as adult books. It's only in this country that they were published as children's books because she wanted to approach adult themes using characters that she had invented for children. But don't you think that was to do with the the illustrations, which kind of put them firmly in there, which is an an interesting thing. I I guess, like, you know, it's a bit like Roald Dahl. I mean, you could publish Matilda almost as an adult book. Yes, yes, very much. If you didn't have Quentin Blake's drawings. I've been reading some of her adult books uh, this year, the summer book, which is a classic, really, The True Deceiver, and one called Sun City. It's a second novel that she wrote in English called Sun City. It's set in Florida. It's I, had to, I had to buy a copy from a Florida library. It's incredibly rare. And I'd like to issue a public appeal to sort of books who have done a brilliant know, job. Amazing job republishing her in the last 10 years but have thus far ignored this book because presumably it's insufficiently scandinavian but it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful i mean it is it to see early 70s america and the life of old people in early 70s america through the eyes of somebody from a totally different world is really uh, remarkable it's a terrific book I thought it was going to be a coruscating kind of a, <laughs> a, a attack on South African casinos during the apartheid. No, it's just coincidental. <laughs> it's just a coincidence. Um, can I give it a – I mean, it's really – this is a cheesy marketing line because, as Andy knows, I, I, I can't resist a cheesy marketing line. But if Lyra Balacqua ever wrote short stories, they would read a lot <laughs> like, I think, that the stories in Turve 
Janssen's uh, winter book and, and indeed the summer book. She's just, it, it's, it's fantastically, they're, they're just odd, aren't they? In the yeah. same way, and we'll come on to Jean Reese, there's that, that sort of, that thing about writers who are odd. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you try to be odd, but there's that if you really, it's that thing you read a sentence and a sentence. I mean, as I say, the book is now somewhere on the circle line, I think. But the uh, lucky person who's going to pick that up, I'd like to yeah. also take the opportunity to re- recommend to all adult readers Moomin Valley in November, which I reread quite recently. That's like a Bergman film. <laughs> it's like a, it's like, it's, like it's a, a children's film. book with about absence. There are no yeah. Moomins in it. Yeah. All, all the and animals actually, arrive and all the Moomins have gone. You're right to bring that up because I, and when I think about these, I, reading these stories, I, I rem, I'm reminded of early Bergman, Summer with Monica. Yes. That kind of amazing, uh, strange, weird thing that basically it's shit, the winter is shit, and then the summer is incredibly intense, and then there's a shit winter. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, you do get that sort of feeling that there's... A lot of the stories in the in the winter book are about darkness and snow and ice and coldness and but there also there's also wonderful things about it's a brilliant story about her her dad having a party and the mum not involving herself in the party but the dad is basically just her dad brings a bunch of drunk mate rounds mates round and they have a play on the balalaika and they have a they have a hooli and the mum's job is to not interfere but to make sure that there's plenty of pickled herring in the in the fridge so they can um, they can refresh themselves at various times it's it's about as joyful as it gets what are you reading this ah. week <laughs> sorry i have been reading successfully from cover to cover a brief history of time by <laughs> professor stephen hawking Yes, I think I think that's utterly deserved. Thank um, you. Which is right up there, if I'm not wrong, along with 1984 as the most talked about, least read book of all time. <laughs> 1984? Apparently that's the book that most people lie about having read. Is it really? Uh, can I tell you a terrible, terrible, da- dark secret? I have never read 1984. I've talked about it. I've never, just never read it. I did, it didn't come up. I've read it for you. No, Linda, <laughs> I mean, Linda, I've read it so Linda, many times. Linda Grant is looking at me with such such disdain. <laughs> I'm just being and disappointment. I've read ev- pretty much everything else that Orwell ever wrote. I mean, I've read all of the other yeah, shit novels, but not the hit. Uh, you know, Aspidist, keep the Aspidist, uh, Aspidist <laughs> flying. You're too good like the hit. before we got popular. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't read it. It's just I'd always felt it was sort of John liked his early B sides, and then after he stopped, not that, much I actually. What I love, everybody, what everybody loves of Orwell is the essays, yeah. which are beyond compare. But coming up for air, I keep like the coming up for air. Yeah, it's all right. Anyway, that's another podcast. But, but by the way, much anyway, I'm just I saying would like to talk about all you're talking about yeah. Stephen. Hawking. So, brief history of time. I was challenged to read a brief history of time by a friend of mine, uh, who I've known for 30 years, who said to me, looked down a list of books that I was planning to read, and he said, "But these are all fiction, Andy. These are all fiction. Why don't you read any non-fiction?" I, I my friend, he's a maths prodigy. He loves maths, and he said, "You've got a brief history of time on here." And until he challenged me to read it, I, to be honest with you, although it was on my to-read list, I had no real plans to read it but i thought well i'll give it i'll give it a no, go no real plans no real plans to read it yeah <laughs> but i did read it and uh, i found it quite tough going famously chewy yeah famously it's a book more started than finished uh, isn't it and i had to read several chapters three times particularly the bits about quantum mechanics and imaginary numbers but i did find it very enlightening and it was really good to see how all those terms that you've heard of 
like black hole and event horizon and string theory, theory. and uncertainty principle, etc., fit together. Though, please don't ask me now on the spot to explain to you how they do fit together. Obviously, I can't do that. Because I, obviously, knowing you were reading it, I had, to, I had to dig it up again. I've not read it, I'll be honest. Okay. I mean, I've read... Yeah, I've, I've skimmed it this week Has because it got thinner as well. I'm sure no, the version no. I had was about double. It's actually fitness. no, it's actually got slightly longer. But okay. this is added a but this is a slightly um, you know personal thing. But do you remember that John Gray? Did you remember the guy who used to run yeah. the Waterstones in Aberdeen? He yes, was single-handedly responsible for making this book a bestseller. He read it. And he was, I think, a bit of a math geek and kind of went mental for it in Aberdeen. I mean, bought like 200 copies and they all sold. And then, I mean, it seems like the least likely word of mouth book <laughs> you could possibly imagine. But that's sort of what it became. And it, of course, the problem with it is, I mean, it is, I have to say, I found it weirdly less forbidding than I'd expected it to. Yeah. But I still, if you say to me string theory, I'm going to yeah. struggle to Want say, to sleep. I'm going to struggle to say it succinctly and interesting yes yes although there was lots there are lots of little they're wonderful little moments in it i think is a just no the whole black hole thing is so gorgeous i I realized that i'd like of a a universe that's sort of consuming itself i love that i realized where does it go where does all the stuff go where is the universe where where's the outside (laughs) Where, where all this stuff where does it go when it's not in the universe that's i mean which he kind of glosses over let's be honest i realized i'd like 40 years of prep (laughs) <laughs> before reading this book because of most of the concepts were familiar to me via 40 years of reading Douglas Adams and watching Doctor Who yeah. and Star Trek and yeah. films called The Black Hole yeah. and Event Horizon. And what I don't know about the general theory of relativity, I do make up for with a solid foundation in crappy 70s <laughs> and 80s sci-fi, right? And on that basis, the real revelation for me when reading A Brief History of Time was that I found a mistake no, God. I found a mistake in A Brief History of Time, a, mis- a book which has been in print for 25 years and has sold in excess of 10 million copies. Ten right? I am going to read you. Copies. I am going to read you the erroneous passage, and I'm going to ask you to tell me what's wrong with it. Okay? Erroneous passage. Here we go. Coming up. The, o- the other possible way to resolve the paradoxes of time travel might be called the alternative histories hypothesis. The idea here is that when time travellers go back to the past, they enter alternative histories which differ from recorded history. Thus, they can act freely without the constraint of consistency with their previous history. Steven Spielberg had fun with this notion in the Back to the Future films. Marty McFly was able to go back and change his parents' courtship to a more satisfactory history. What is the the schoolboy error there? Outrageous. It was directed by a person other than Steven Spielberg. Absolutely. Back to the Future was written and directed by right. Robert Zemeckis of and course. Bob Gale. Zemeckis, yeah. And so saying it's... And Steven Spielberg was involved. He was the executive producer, but it would be a bit like attributing the success of A Brief History of Time to the finance director of its publisher, Bantam Books, <laughs> rather than its author, Professor Stephen Hawking. And one of the other things I learned about A Brief History of Time is, while reading it is that Professor Hawking is not the kind of chap who would let an error like that go easily. Now, the first question that struck me is, why has nobody spotted that mistake? In a brief history of time, over the last 25 years, which sold 10 million copies, well, clearly, one, it's not what the book's about. 
And so uh, some might argue it doesn't matter. I wouldn't argue that. But some might say that. But secondly, also, it's on page 183, isn't it? <laughs> Quite near the end of the book, suggesting the end of the book has indeed not been read that frequently. And there's also in that paragraph a grammatical error in there, which suggests that even the proofreader didn't make it as far as page 183 of A Brief History of Time. It's all circumstantial evidence. I can't prove it. Finally, the last thing I want to say about A Brief History of Time is I really loved Professor Hawking's author biography, presumably self-penned, at the back of the book, which starts with the line, Stephen Hawking was born in Oxford in 1942, exactly 300 years after the death of Galileo. Just pluck that fact out of the air. That's a bit like me saying Andy Miller was born in Croydon in 1968, six years after Marvel Comics published the first issue of The Incredible Hulk, as though it were just a naturally flowing fact. Is that true? It is true. I researched it. (laughs) And the point being, Professor Hawking throughout the book, to his great credit, he's a very, very clever man, but he's very, (laughs) very keen to place himself in the lineage of Galileo, Newton, Einstein and... Andy Miller. Professor Hawking. I mean, you know what? I'm really pleased to have read it. It is yeah, very I, much I a horrible phrase outside my comfort zone, but it is very much outside my comfort zone. And yet I did find... He does I, write really well. Yeah, he writes really well. And also it's good for your brain to be pushed a bit and struggle to get your head around things you wouldn't normally get your head around. So I'm very pleased to have read it. Okay, it's time now for an advert. Andy. Yes. You're on a desert island. Yep. And you have a choice between... A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and Good Morning Midnight by Jean Rhys. Which would you which would you go for? <laughs> I think it's obvious. <laughs> I think it's obvious to anyone listening that I and everyone gathered here would choose uh, Jean Rhys, uh, including our guest today, Linda Grant. Hello, Linda. Hello. Thank you for coming in. Author of I novel- would not choose Jean Rhys to be alone with on a desert. <laughs> Unless you brought something to drink, actually. Uh, Linda, author of novels such as The Clothes on Their Back and most recently Upstairs at the Party, Um, as well as a short book, which I would just like to talk a little bit about first, called I Murdered My Library, which is an account of... A Kindle single. How you you disposed of a lifetime's worth of books, Mm -hmm. didn't you? I did. I moved to a flat which was half the size of the previous one, and... I didn't have room for all my books, and I had to have a massive, painful, traumatic clear-out. And one of the things which was... Uh, you, you imagine that you, you know you're building this library, and that in your old age you will reread these books. And in fact, I, you know, I do reread. But when I got down off the shelf my 1970s paperbacks of, um, I have the complete works of Dickens, Penguin editions. You open them, the pages sort of smelt, you know, of Mm. cheap paper and bad ink, and they fell out because the glue had perished, and I couldn't read them because, yeah, and couldn't read them because the writing was too small, the typeface was too small, so so I was sort of throwing them, throwing them, throwing them, and people asked me, you know, did you get, you know, do you send them to a book dealer? Nobody is interested. (laughs) Nobody is interested in 1970s 
these paperbacks. You know, the next generation is doesn't read, they're not interested, the book dealers are not interested, there were no first editions, there was nothing like that, because I didn't buy first editions, I bought paperbacks. Mm. So it was very, very traumatic. But I have to say, um, my entire collection of Jean Rhys did survive the cut, and the one which I have in front of me is dated, as we used to do rather pretentiously in those days, <laughs> uh, August 1980. So that was when I was reading Jean Rhys in the 70s, late 70s. You were saying to me a little bit earlier on that you read all of her novels mm, in, in yeah. quick succession back then? Yeah. White Sargasso Sea was published in the 60s, I think. And I remember they had that in the school library, and that was the first time I'd heard of her, and I read that. And then they they republished, Penguin republished all the Paris novels. And I must have been in my late 20s when I and everybody else I know read all of Jean Rhys. And I, I've been trying to figure out why it was that in this kind of great feminist phase of our lives, we thought, <laughs> for reasons which are now completely opaque to me, that she was some kind of great feminist discovery, <laughs> because she is not. I, I mean, not she sister, is, is she? she's not a sister. I mean, she is the writer which I cherish. Of 20th century writers, she is the writer I cherish the most. Having said that, I haven't actually reread her because, as the writer Susan Hill said, you can't read two in succession because you commit suicide. <laughs> but uh, I remember uh, reading them at the time and finding them indescribably painful because what they were actually telling you was we were in our 20s, it was the 70s, we were absolutely arrogantly self-confident in our ability to change the world, have as much sex as we wanted, <laughs> to smoke as much dope as we wanted, to do anything we wanted, to be anything we wanted. And then you have this series of, of very, very short novels about women who are 15, 20 years older than you who are sitting in a room drinking themselves to death. And mm. it was, I think, the first intimation to us that we were not immortal, <laughs> that we were not young mm. and going to stay young forever. So it was, she was a, a kind of terrifying and corrosive and eye-opening read back then and rereading her now what struck me about her is that the you know i remember when i was reading her at the time thinking why don't you get a job you know get a job <laughs> but the Jean reese heroine you know, does not get a job if she can help it. She's so what she does the is... The most annoying girl you've she's, ever met. She sits that in... Thing that I just, that's the thing I was reading Goodnight Midnight, which I'd never read before, which is brilliant. It's Good morning, thing. Midnight. <laughs> 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 but it's that thing of, oh, my God, just, 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 you're so smart and you're so beautiful and you're so difficult. Just be less difficult. Can she, I just, can I just give, do a quick recap yeah. of Jean Reese's Life, because it's germane to what we're talking about, clearly. Jean Rees, born 1890 in Dominica in the West Indies, died 1979 in Devon, England, aged 88. 
published a book of short stories in 1927 called The Left Bank with a big introduction from her editor and lover, Ford Maddox Ford. And then she, in the late 20s into the late 30s, she published four novels, Postures, uh, which became Quartet subsequently. In 1931, After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, 1934, Voyage in the Dark, 1939, Good Morning, Midnight. Each of those novels, in commercial terms, was progressively less successful than the previous one. And after the publication of Good Morning Midnight, which kind of disappeared, so did Jean Rhys. And for many years, it was believed that many people thought that she was dead. She moved to uh, Devon and vanished, and uh, her books all fell out of print. And... Um, in 1955, she, in 19, from 1955 to 1960, she lived in Bude in Cornwall, which she referred to in letters as Bude the Obscure. <laughs> and, uh, and then she moved to a village in Devon called Sheraton Fitzpayne, which she described as, quote, a dull spot which even drink can't enliven much. And while she was living there, she was accused of being a witch and was shunned by most of the village. <laughs> I found this quote from the chairman of the Cheriton Fitzpain Parish Council, who in 2010 was asked how he felt about Jean referring to Cheriton Fitzpain as a dull spot, which even drink can't enliven much. And he responded by saying, there's always something going on. It's exceptionally friendly. There's football, cricket, darts and skittles. There's a drama club, a WI and a church. He added, we barely knew Jean because she kept herself to herself quite a lot. <laughs> um, so, so she basically, she's languishing in obscurity for many, many years. And then thanks to uh, Francis Wyndham and Diana Athill, yeah. they coax the novel Wide Sargasso Sea out of her, which she spends years writing, 17, maybe even 20 years. And um, we have a little clip here of... Jean Rhys being interviewed at the end of her life after she had finally achieved great success with Wide Sargasso Sea, which won prizes and is widely agreed to be a classic. And here she is talking, I think, in her interview with the Paris Review, talking a little bit about how it felt to write and live the life of a writer. When I was excited about life, I didn't want to write at all. I've never written about being happy, never. I didn't want to. Besides, I don't think you can describe being happy. I've never had a long period of being happy. Do you think anybody has? I think, I think you can be peaceful for quite a long time. But to be happy is, is different, isn't it? And that's a bit rare, I can't have feeling. But then altogether, I, I, I think, well, I think if I had to choose, I'd rather be happy than right. <laughs> if I had my life all over again and could choose. I'm just going to read now the synopsis on the back uh, cover of Linda's <laughs> Coffee of Good Morning Midnight. Can anyone imagine this getting through a marketing meeting Let's today? Here we Let's go, here we go. This is, so you, you're in the station bookstore, you're looking for something to read. Yeah. Here we go. 
Back in Paris for a quiet, sane fortnight, Sasha Jensen has just been rescued by a friend from drinking herself to death in a Bloomsbury bedsitter. Despite a transformation act, new clothes and a blonde Sondre hair dye, Sasha still feels, quote, not quite as good as new, unquote. Streets, shops and bars vividly evoke her Paris path. Feckless husband Enno, her dead baby, sundry humiliations in abject jobs. One night, a gigolo mistakes Sasha for a rich woman. She still has her fur coat, and their subsequent liaison somehow distills the essence of all that has gone before. I mean, the thing is, that makes this book is genius. sound relentlessly miserable. I don't think it is relentlessly miserable, is it, Linda? Um, <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, yeah, it is. It In is a quite, dark way. Uh, yes, it, it is. I mean, the thing about the Jean Rhys heroine of those Paris novels is they're all kind of pretty much the same. They get progressively older. And um, I, I remember thinking when I was reading them, they were a bit like, what would happen if Jane Austen characters were sort of suddenly moved forwards into the, the 20th century and were trying to survive economically? And That's so brilliant. We, we, and what happens to these, to the Jean Rhys character? And there's something I really... The Jean Rhys characters in all these novels, we might think of them as being autobiographical. None of them are artists. There is yeah. no sense whatsoever that any of these people right. are writers. Yeah. They are not writers. They're women who have fallen off the edge of what is the life that women are supposed to lead. So what they do is... They sit in a bedsit waiting for an ex-lover to send them a cheque mm. so they can go and buy a dress to be presentable enough to go and sit in a cafe to be picked up by a man who will support them financially. Mm-hmm. So they live in this kind of world of incredible economic precariousness mm. and because, you know, there's no sense of these women having any form of career, which is, I think, why we found it so strange in the 70s as young feminists. But what they do is, because of the dependence on men, the jobs, the only jobs they could get are kind of, you know, jobs in a cafe, jobs in a shop, and she hasn't got, mm. she, she can't pull it off. She hasn't got the kind of work ethic. So, of course, what happens every single time is prostitution. Mm-hmm. And so the great insight about these novels is how women can fall into prostitution because of this, you know, this mm-hmm. world of dependence of mm-hmm. men. And they're terrifying. Absolutely terrifying, but also sorry, I'm, you you wound me up, and I'm going here. No, it's going it's absolutely brilliant. Well, what every Jane Jean Rhys heroine is absolute heroine character is absolutely obsessed with is clothes, right? Mm. Clothes are utterly important. Yeah. So she spends this money on having this blonde, cendre, ash blonde yeah, hair. Yeah. She's got a mink. She's always talking about her necessity for clothes. But there is this sense of, of these women being absolutely flayed. She lives for this world of, of, you know, the feminine, the kind of, you know, the female stereotype. And beneath it, there is this, this always a strong sense of not fitting in. And there's a little passage here in which he says, this is my attitude to life. Please, please, monsieur, madame, mister, missus and miss, 
I'm trying so hard to be like you. Mm. I know I don't succeed, but look how hard I try. Three hours to choose a hat. Every morning, an hour and a half, trying to make myself look like everybody else. Every word I say has chains around its ankles. Every thought I think is weighted with heavy weights. It's absolutely extraordinary stuff. I know I don't succeed but look how hard I try. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I, that I think is incredible about her writing, incredible mm. about this book, is how quotable it is. I yeah. wrote down some of the quotes here. I'll just read a couple of them here. A room is a place where you hide from the wolves outside, yeah. and that's all any room is. Yeah. And one day the fierce wolf that walks by my side will spring on you and rip your abominable guts out. <laughs> and... I no longer wish to be loved, beautiful, happy or successful. I want one thing and one thing only, to be left alone. Oh, it's so beautiful it and is, kind it. of self-dramatising. But, but <laughs> I, I would like to, the only thing, and I'm going to respond to what Linda was saying slightly, is that although the characters, the Jean Rhys character, as we call her, although they aren't writers, mm. their occupations are things that Jean Rhys did. Yes, yeah. You know, sure. they, mannequin, yeah. mannequin, yeah. Uh, showgirl, yeah. a prostitute. And there's a, Jean Rhys did all that those wonderful things. wonderful scene early in the book where she gets sacked for, you know, yeah. basically just being herself, you know. Yeah. It's just. Well, being herself, and this is the thing that Jean said. Yeah. She specifically said uh, in an interview, I write about myself because that's all I really know. So the the writing is extracted, I agree, but mm. the the interiority, horrible word again, mm. I apologise, but the, the interiority of those mm. characters, they're all Jean, aren't yeah. they? Yes, they. I think they are all... The interiority of them is all Jean. Um, but, you know, I think so many, you know, I think that so many writers would have done this as I am a frustrated artist, mm. you know, and she doesn't do that at all. I mean, I think that one of the, the, the important aspects of her is the fact that she came from this very, very strange background, which is as an Anglo in the Caribbean. Yeah. So when you read White Sock SOC, she's actually racist, but she mm. comes to um, Europe and she experiences the coldness, the coldness of the climate, but also the coldness of the people. But she doesn't really belong in the Caribbean. And she, she feels that she doesn't belong in the yeah. Caribbean, but she doesn't belong here either. And so this powerful sense of alienation is running through absolutely everything. And in a way, she's alienated from the human race. She's... And what she wants is love. She yeah, wants to be loved. She just, that is all she wants. That's the thing for me that made, I mean, not having read her before, it's a total revelation. And I'm, mm. I'm, it was just every, you know, I, I, I'm going to read them all now because I just want that voice. Mm. And there's just little, just little things is that I've never read anyone who captures that sense of the desire for self-improvement mm. and at the same time the undermining of that. You know, mm. it's like she, she's mm. so there's a, I love this. The thing is to have a program, not to leave anything to chance, no gaps, no trailing around aimlessly with cheap gramophone records starting up in your head. No, here this happened, here that happened. Above all, no crying in public, no crying at all if you can help it. Mm. And of course, 
the book is basically just punctuated with her crying at various mo- I mean it, there's something wonderful about that sense of being inside somebody's head and you know that she doesn't want to do I've never really quite read anyone who's done that interior she's monologue like she's as talk- believers it's like somebody talking to themselves yeah. Yeah. you know it's, that's yeah. one of the that's wonderful really things about, yeah. the, about, yes. about the book and also that she has a kind of you know why do such terrible things happen answer because I expect create and deserve them yeah. she wants she can't be free of her own sense of anger self-persecution but kind of despair but humor at the despair but it's a kind of goes round and round you know instinct for self-preservation she has no instinct for self-preservation whatsoever you know there is no common sense there there's never any common sense she's reckless I mean, she buys a painting when she hasn't got any money. She gives the, yeah. the gigolo, you know, her money. She She's crazy. You know, she's crazy and you want to give her a shake. But, <laughs> but isn't it an amazing thing is that somehow yeah. you care about the journey? I mean, it's like, oh. I, I, you know, you think, well, who is this? It ought to be depressing, but it isn't in some because the the language is so precise and the and the the, yes, the the language is incredibly spare. We should say that. Yes, I want to talk about the the language. Here we go. I have no pride, no pride, no name, no face, no country. I don't belong anywhere. Too sad, too sad. It doesn't matter. There I am, like one of those straws, which floats around the edge of a whirlpool and is gradually sucked into the centre the dead centre, where everything is stagnant and everything is calm. Isn't that beautiful? It's just it's so great. Punch the air, brilliant, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. just for that sense of somebody in his life who is, she doesn't, there's, there's no volition there. Linda, you were going to say about the style in which she writes. It's incredibly um, pared back and it's, restrained. It's very it? pared back. It, it's very simple. There are no linguistic fireworks going on there at all there's not a great deal of there is some descriptive writing but she does <laughs> something she does something which i find i'm i'm you can't i can't understand what it is she's doing because you read page 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 and then she says there's one sentence and your stomach flips and you think mm. she has mm. prepared the mm. ground mm. here absolutely Pages and pages have prepared you for one sentence, which is not doing anything showy or flashy, but it's like a punch to the stomach. Um, I I, 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 stick it round the wrist of the dead baby. Oh, Oh, yeah. I would like to say that my experience of reading these books is obviously very different to Linda's because Jean Rhys is my favourite writer that I've discovered in the last 10 years. I I read White Sargasso Sea about 10 years ago and I thought it was... Fantastic, it's fantastic. No, it's a classic, as I said earlier. But several years after that, I then I think I read After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie. And shortly after reading After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, I read a book of short stories, Tigers Are Better Looking. Tigers Are Better Looking, currently out of print. Penguin Books, if you're listening, bring it back. And I felt a very strong sense. Oh, oh, this is, this is like all those. Graham Greene yeah. and Patrick Hamilton books yeah, that yeah. I've read and loved. But wait a minute, it's, and Malcolm Lowry, but wait a minute, it's, it's written in the 1930s. They're written by a woman and the literary quality of them, with all due respect to three of my favorite authors, Greene, <laughs> um, lots of Lowry and most of Hamilton. The sheer literary quality in the way that Linda was just talking about is way above that. Yeah. I struggle to see 
I mean, and I say that reading them here in the 21st century, they seem incredibly modern to me and the sensibility seems very modern. They must have been perplexing in the extreme Insane. in the I mean, 1930s. If you're reading this in 1939, it's yeah. seemed... I, I have to say, again, pleasure, the pleasure thing about reading is to find a voice that is that mm. absolutely clear. I mean, mm. it, it's so rare. I mean, mm. you know, you're not... I, I, I think now I could pick up a book randomly by anybody uh and and spotted jean reese i mean it's mm. that's she's that good and that quick at, at getting that sensibility linda you were saying um on twitter uh, okay. uh, you said a brilliant thing about <laughs> what it's like to read jean reese now yes well if what you demand from fiction yeah which is now heavily demanded from Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews and particularly good group book groups is likable characters. You are not going to find any likable characters in Jean Rhys. <laughs> and, you know, as such, there is no one more bracingly, literally <laughs> not, serious. Not, not relatable, isn't there? <laughs> not you want no, that sort not, of li like, but with certain, with not, serious yeah. misgivings. I mean, sort yeah, of like. Uh... Yeah, not relatable. Um, <laughs> not relatable at all. You know, th this demand to soften the novel by requiring that it be likable yeah. characters and this is an even worse expression that I can root for um, <laughs> you know which is apparently a phrase which which originates with Kurt Vonnegut which I can never forgive him for I only found this out quite recently meant it quite as... well apparently he had some rules for writing yes, and one of them yeah, was character right. and there must be at least one character that you can root for I mean are we rooting well, for Sasha I mean not really you're not really rooting you're just looking with your hands slightly yes, over your yes, eyes yes, going absolutely. oh my god I'm watching a car crash but the truthfulness of it that's but it's the thing tr though, right? it's truthful yeah, it's yeah. absolutely truthful Matthew um, and I had a water cooler conversation earlier in the week and he said pretty fucking depressing <laughs> <laughs> hey Linda did you you said you hadn't reread this book no, since the 70s yeah was it as good as you remembered it was it better than you remembered it I think that it didn't have the, the effect on me that it had when I was in my 20s, which was entirely a personal subjective one, mm. which was terror, right? Because yeah. terror, I think right. that... I think that when I was in my 20s, there were these, you know, you probably, they probably exist less now, but sort of middle-aged women living in a bedsit on limited means, you know, who would be, you know, hitting the ceiling with a, you know, the broom handle to tell you to keep quiet, you know, the, these <laughs> women oh, yeah. who sort of spinsterish women that you're all completely bed terrified sit, yeah. of being bedsit land. Yeah. And, you know, this is cockroaches, you know, poverty, all of that kind of thing. And I think we saw this kind of abyss, you know, this kind of gulf of horror that, you know, possibly, and you, you know, you get to the age you're like, oh, that's all right. I'm okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> we're out, we're out. We're um, out the other side. Yeah, we're out the other side of that. Um, but I, I think that, Rereading it, it, uh, rereading her, her, her style is so extraordinary. I remember having a conversation with a publisher who 
was very taken aback when I said that I thought that Jean Rees was one of the great writers of the 20th century. And he said, slightly sneeringly, he said, well, I put her on a par with Evelyn Waugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Evelyn Waugh, mm. and you know, but this woman is doing something yeah. so far beyond, yeah, yeah. you know, what Waugh was doing, even though I like him very much. I can see some of the similarities, you know, particularly in those early novels, but these are not social novels. I think that, you know, the pain of reading her has subsided. Mm. Um, and I now think to myself, how is she being read by people who are coming at her for the first time and now I find out? Mm, mm, mm. I would like to make a, just a very quick uh, uh, mention for a, a book that was recommended to me by Eric Anderson at Lonesome Reader yeah. called Difficult Women mm. by David Plant, which is a memoir of working with, in reverse order, Jermaine Greer, Sonia Orwell and Jean Rees. Jesus Christ. And the, the, the description that? of ministering to Jean's requirements in her 80s while attempting to coax her autobiography out of her is one of the most hair-raising <laughs> reads imaginable. And that sense of what it must have been like to be Jean Rees at that stage is very brilliantly communicated there, yeah. which, bri which brings us, the, the being Jean Rees, brings us to, to, at last, Mr. Matthew Clayton. with a tenuous link. Tenuous link. Well, I was, uh, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about our connection to her and um, how we kind of bring her back to life. And I was, when I was reading the book, I was interested to discover, uh, you, uh, Linda, you talked earlier about the hats and the clothes, and there's also perfumes mentioned. Mm. And the, bleu. Yeah, Le Bleu. Um, which was the perfume that the main character wears, and is also the perfume that was uh, Jean's favourite perfume. Mm. And I was um, amazed to discover that it's still being manufactured. So I went to Debenhams at lunchtime, and I've got in this bag... <laughs> I went in there and kind of embarrassed myself by um, going to the kind of tester thing and getting some... going and asking if they had Le Heur Bleu, and they did... So I've no. got some here, so I thought we could oh, all... brilliant, um, brilliant. I, I've, I've got some for us all to smell. And I thought, Andy, maybe you could start by smelling the glove. Smell the glove. <laughs> um, <laughs> Smile tap, thank so, you very much. So it's, yes. on my, it, it's on here. It's, on, maybe the, you it's could on the try glove. And, yeah, it's on the glove. you actually produce a bottle. It costs 80 quid, Linda. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you sprayed the gloves. I, sp I sprayed the gloves. What do you think it smells like? Can you smell it? Describe smells, it. I think it well, to me, it smells of like Mr. Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> if that's well, what, if that's what G, Mr. Jean. I'm not really a... I'm not good on How would you here. describe it? I can give you the manufacturer's description. Go on. So it's described as it opens with a spicy, sweet aniseed note. Yeah. That leads into rose, carnation, violet. The soft and powery floral notes rest on a bed of vanilla. <laughs> do they? Yeah, do they? Yeah. Sorry, I'm supposed to so evoke. This is, is this the, the perfume that that the Jean wore that, and that, that Sasha wore in the book? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, and the um, just mix that smell with some perno. Yeah, you have the. You have the. I mean, can we just say that very few people have ever written better about drink ever? Yeah. I mean, she's just. She's really out there. I love this, this great amazing, passage. Actually. Yeah. I have an irresistible longing for a long, strong drink to make me forget 
that once again I have given damnable human beings the right to pity me and laugh at me. Is that, isn't that <laughs> brilliant? That's every time I've ever been in a bar ever. <laughs> damnable human the, beings. Um, and, and the book is, the book's, you know, you can buy, obviously you can buy the book and the perfume on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> Which do you think has the highest customer rating? No, The book or the perfume? Oh, the book. Perfume. The book. Perfume. So, Linda, you're going for the book. the book. Andy, you're going for perfume. Well, I have to go for the perfume, obviously. Well, it's actually um, the book. Linda, yes. you're right. Really? The, the book was 4.4. Yeah. The oh. perfume, only 4.1. Well, that's, that's because... <laughs> that's statistically accurate. That's statistically and that's because it's a perfume which is dated... If you see what I mean, it's it's, it's very old, old lady. It's, it smells it's very old, old ladies. It, it, the thing about the thing about perfume, if you're a woman, um, is you yeah, have no, to great. be. You have to. Men don't like what they perceive to be old lady perfume. perfume. And I remember I had just come from um, a perfumier who, and I had two two cents, one in each hand, and I was at the hairdressers, and I said to the hairdresser, male. Which one do you like? And he said, don't like that one, it's old lady. Yeah. Mm. Um, so m- contemporary men don't like strong scents. Interesting. Strong, complex Matthew, scents. Matthew, are, are those your gloves or did you just find them in the, <laughs> in the um, Debenham? I do love smell the gloves. I'm afraid they're my gloves. <laughs> now you're going to be smelling of Jean Reese on my yeah. cycle home. Can I tell you one thing that my QI research threw up many years ago, which is extraordinary, is that they they did a, they tested a lot of um, chemicals on sperm, and the main chemical that's in Lily of the Valley, they discovered, made sperm swim three times as fast mm. as any other. So, you know, your kind of grandma's knicker drawers that used to have those. I don't think they have them now, but you'd have Lily of the Valley sachets in your in your drawers. Possibly all, all worked out for the best. It's, it's, um... the, I mean, the final thing about the perfume, I think, is maybe one of the reasons why she loved it so much is the stopper of the perfume is a hollow heart. Oh, there oh, it is. Beautifully done. Very good. Tenuous, but so, yeah. so, so, <laughs> That's so That's very nice. Well, thanks for uh, listening. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for coming to talk about Jean Rees. Thank you, Matthew, for your tireless research and your, and your ability to go into Debenhams and, uh, and, and smell the glove. Uh, thank you, John. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you've got something you want to contribute to uh, Batlisted, you can get in touch with us via Facebook. We're on Twitter at BatlistedPod. Uh, and we'll see you soon in a fortnight. Thanks very much. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.